has once again made international headlines. The federal court has ruled the government's invocation of the Emergencies Act in response to the trucker protests was illegal. My guest on today's program argued during the crisis that the government had done something that it had no constitutional power to do. And he joins me on the program today to talk through this historic court decision. Ryan Alford is a constitutional law expert, a law professor at Lakehead University, and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Ryan Alford is my guest today on Lean Out. Ryan, welcome to Lean Out. So glad to be here, Tara. How are you today? I am well. And how about yourself? Quite well, thank you. And I'm still um, quite elated from the ruling that we're about to discuss, which will probably be apparent over the course of this podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm very excited to get to have this conversation with you today as well. We're going to talk through some pretty big news in this country. The federal court has ruled that the invocation of the Emergencies Act in response to the trucker protests was illegal and unreasonable. We will get to the decision. But first, just some context for our listeners outside of Canada. Can you give us a brief explainer on what the Emergencies Act is and what the government's rationale was for invoking it almost two years ago? The Emergencies Act was brought in in 1988 as a replacement for a statute called the War Measures Act, which had existed since the First World War. The notion being that when the country is in a state of war, there are kind of problems or crises that it can face that are outside of the scope of any other legislation. So essentially, it's about what kind of legislative framework you have for the government to respond quickly to things like foreign invasion or insurrection, problems of that nature. And Its particular form in 1988 was a reaction to what happened quite belatedly in 1970, when the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, his father, Pierre Trudeau, used the War Measures Act during peacetime to send in the military into Quebec to deal with a a terrorist incident. And also, just walk us through what the government's rationale was for invoking it. Right. So essentially, you had the situation where there were protests popping up across Canada, some of which were at border crossings, notably at Coutts and then at Windsor. And the question was, were the local authorities, particularly the provinces, ready, willing and able to deal with those problems? And at the same time, there was a relatively intractable protest, a long sustained, to some degree, disorganized, disruptive protest in downtown Ottawa. So the question was, did this constitute the kind of emergency that would call for the proclamation of a state of emergency under the Emergencies Act? And the federal government said yes. And that's the decision of the government rather than a decision of the Canadian parliament. And just one last background question here. What did the government use those special powers for during the nine days that the act was in effect? To some degree, that's the central question. Because Looking at it retrospectively, it doesn't seem that it needed any of the extra powers that the Emergencies Act gave them. So, for instance, there was a lot of discussion, including at the public inquiry into the Emergencies Act, about the availability of tow trucks. The notion that, well, we couldn't otherwise get tow trucks to come and tow away, particularly big rigs in downtown Ottawa. Uh, that doesn't withstand any serious legal scrutiny because the police essentially have the power using their normal range of criminal code powers to compel people to cooperate with them in this respect. Not doing so would be a criminal code offense. The other question, and so this goes back a couple of decades, 
why when there was this occupation at a place called Oka, which was a very serious incident, why did the Canadian government at the time not need to use the Emergencies Act? Well, because they sent in the military. Now, a lot of people said, well, isn't that, in fact, more serious that you use the military? We didn't want to do that. So instead, we declare a state of emergency under the Emergencies Act. But unfortunately, it's the other way around. Because the federal government controls the military, they can use something called the National Defense Act, as they did during the Oka crisis, to deal with the situation without expanding the scope of the cabinet's own powers or expanding the scope of the powers of the federal government vis-a-vis the provinces. So again, when you see these discussions about how, well, we don't want to use the military or we don't want to use criminal code powers to compel people to tow trucks, that's really damning on the question of whether or not they had a a principled legal basis to invoke the Emergencies Act. Now, you and I last spoke during the period the act was in effect. You had signed an open letter from lawyers rejecting the use of the act, and you maintained that the government had done something it had no constitutional power to do and that its actions represented, I think the phrase was, a layer cake of constitutional violations. Let's now turn our attention to the federal court decision from Justice Mosley, which was released a few days ago. Several groups applied for a judicial review, including the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. I should note, I also interviewed Executive Director Noah Mendelssohn-Aviv during the Emergencies Act period, as well as the Canadian Constitution Foundation and its Executive Director Joanna Barron has also been on this show. Now, at the time, the Prime Minister maintained that the invocation did not violate charter rights, but Mosley has ruled otherwise. Can you walk us through the basic outlines of the judge's decision here? Well, unfortunately, we're back to the layer cake, because in order to violate charter rights, the government had to commit even more fundamental violations. So the actual key point of the ruling is not the charter rights were violated, but rather that the declaration itself was ultra-virus. Right. So what you have is a situation where the government did something unconstitutional at this more fundamental level, which is to say to invoke its own emergency powers when it had no legal basis to do so. Having done that, it then put orders into effect that implicated charter rights, more specifically freedom of expression. So Mosley was very clear on this at the time when the emergency measures were passed. You know, people made this point, and I think uh, I have to refer to the litigation director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Kara Zweibel, on this point, because it's a very trenchant point. If one person had showed up on Parliament Hill with a sign, and that sign said, I do not support the Emergencies Act, or let's just say it's me, and my sign is, there is no legal basis for the proclamation of the emergency, I would be guilty of a criminal code offense that has just been created by the cabinet. And that in itself ultra-virus would also have been a clear violation of my right to freedom of expression in a way which is also not justifiable under the framework of Section 1 of the Charter. So it infringes, and that limitation is not justifiable in a free and democratic society. That was one of the rulings that Justice Mosley made. Other ones, including related to bank seizures, say, okay, well, you're seizing people's bank accounts in a completely arbitrary manner with no process whatsoever. That's also affecting their spouses. It's affecting their children. And that's not a hypothetical, right? We had actual people in that litigation who were directly affected by bank seizures, by the freezing orders, who were testifying to this. This is a violation under Section 8 rights and a very serious one. But more fundamentally, it didn't even have the legal power to do what it did that then infringed the charter. 
And I'm glad you raised freedom of expression because I did argue at the time publicly that this was a threat to freedom of expression. This was a very unpopular position in the media at that time. We will come back to the media shortly, but but I wanted to talk for a moment now about the government response. So Christian Freeland immediately came out, said the government would appeal Mosley's decision. I want to just read some of her statement here. I would just like to take a moment to remind Canadians of how serious the situation was in our country when we took that decision. The public safety of Canadians was under threat. Our national security, which includes our national economic security, was under threat. Uh, What do you make of the government's response? It's shocking. So that phrase, including our economic security, that was discussed extensively at the Public Order Emergency Commission. The notion that you could retroactively insert economic security into the definition of a national emergency. And interestingly, so the Public Order Emergency Commission was also charged, and this is kind of a problematic element of its mandate, is that at the same time it's supposed to evaluate whether or not there was a case for the invocation of the Emergencies Act, the government defined its mandate to give recommendations about whether or not the Emergencies Act should be expanded. And one of the things that was squarely on that agenda during what was called the policy phase of the commission was whether it should be expanded to include economic security. So that, in fact, is an admission that it isn't already in there. And the government didn't get what they wanted. Justice Rulo was even, I would say, even handed on the question of whether or not that's a good idea to expand it out that way. But there's no question that it wasn't in the currently prevailing definition of national security that the government was bound to respect when it brought the proclamation of the emergency. So Christia Freeland, in trotting out this rationale of economic security, which, again, people have said, think about the implications of this, right? I would just point to the testimony of Professor Leo West at the commission about this in particular. People want to look at that. Think about the implications of this. Essentially, anything would then be covered by the possibility of a, a national emergency. But they're admitting that they didn't have the rationale at the time when they rely upon this definition that includes explicitly economic security. And that's quite shocking. What they're saying, in fact, is we get to rewrite the law that defines our emergency powers whenever we see fit. And if courts don't like it, we'll just keep going until they agree. I want to put some objections to this decision to you now that I've encountered so far this week. And the first is referring to the Public Order Emergency Commission, which was triggered by the invocation of of the act, which you were granted standing at and and participated in. So the argument is this was incredibly comprehensive. It involved some 300 hours of testimony, including from our prime minister, and the release of thousands of pages of documents. And Justice Rouleau concluded that it had been appropriate for the federal government to invoke the act, though he, he did say he came to that conclusion reluctantly. So as this line of argument goes, one liberal appointed judge decided yes, the other liberal appointed judge said no. So it's basically a wash. How how do you respond to that thinking? Well, I think we have to think about the function of a public inquiry and the, the function of judicial review. So one metaphor you can use is focus. So the clarity of the picture is defined oftentimes by the tightness of the focus. What was put before Justice Mosley in the federal court was precisely the issue of whether or not the government was acting within the range of its statutory authority under the Emergencies Act laser-like focus on that particular legal question. Now, unfortunately, it's not merely that you take a look at the Public Order Emergency Commission and say, well, you know, who's making the decision, et cetera. You take a look at what decision was called for to be made by the mandate of the commission. Because essentially, it's not 
merely, or you know, to pick up that line of criticism, that someone gets to choose the judge of their own cause, which you do in a public inquiry, just formally, the governor and council appoints the commissioner, right? So the cabinet, just wearing a different hat, says, oh, someone says we should evaluate our own conduct. Well, let's find the person to do that. And they, they go and do that. But they also defined the charge sheet against them. So when someone's charged with murder, it would be very nice if you chose the judge of your own murder trial. But it would be even nicer if you got to say, the question is, was it bad? Was it wrong in this situation? You know, George Costanza kind of saying, well, was that, was that, is that frowned upon? You know, you had to just broaden it out. The question is, is this justifiable? Is this acceptable? Is it reasonable under the circumstances? Now, I understand that Justice Rulo did approach it more legally. But the question is, as commissioner, when he's also asked about the circumstances, when he's asked about recommendations about how the act should be redefined, all of these things tend to filter into this general determination. So people say, look at the scope of the findings of the commission. Well, that's the problem, right? Look at the, the breadth of it. Look at the depth of it. I would counterpoise that. And I would point people to the ruling of Justice Mosley, which is quite easy to read, even for a layperson, right? I would say, at least comparatively with respect to the many court judgments, it has a very precise focus, and that is its strength. Okay, another point I'm seeing circulating is that Mosley himself said in the decision that we now know way more than we did at the time. So the sort of fog of war defense, does that hold any weight with you? Well, again, I mean, if you're talking about the kind of conclusions for the Public Order Emergency Commission, to which I think Justice Mosley wants to be sensitive, you know, Justice Rulo spent a tremendous amount of time taking testimony, working on the, the volumes of the report, that, that kind of determination is a fair one. Right. That, well, it was difficult to make a decision under these circumstances. But the more important determination is whether or not they violated the Constitution and exceeded their statutory authority. So that's what mostly is actually opining on everything else. I mean, lawyers have a term called obiter, right? Short for obiter dicta. It's something you just say kind of in passing or besides the point. And, you know, I mean, there are there's a lot of that in Justice Rulo's remarks. Um, but it tends to be in the context of a commission report where he has this free-ranging mandate to discuss these things. Justice Mosley, you can much more easily distinguish between what we call the ratio, right, or the reasons for decision, everything that had to go into the logical framework that comes to that particular conclusion about constitutionality and legality. And then you can say, well, other things are obiter, right? So it's very nice that Bill can point to some obiter and say, well, you know, there was some fog of war for the government, but look, what we're talking about now is accountability for having gotten it wrong. And there should be some. And and would that also apply to his comment? You see this circulating online right now, too, that people have not fully read his decision. If they read it, they would see he says he may have invoked the act himself. Would that same sort of logic apply to that comment? Right. I mean, it's clearly opener because the question of whether or not a judge in that situation would have made the same decision is not him saying this is what defines legality or constitutionality. I think he was very deferential to the government in their factual determinations, something that's quite important um, when you consider issues like appeal, which is, you know, as you said, Minister Freeland is talking about that at this very moment. Uh, but additionally, I would just say, go through and read it and, and figure out for yourself what you think is more important. The comments about whether or not it was difficult to make this decision under the circumstances or whether the government violated a statutory authority and infringed the Constitution. Because... You have to make your own decision as to what you think is more important in your society, that you have this grace for politicians who have a difficult job or whether or not they're held accountable 
for when they do that job in a way that infringes the Constitution. I want to spend a moment now on the media. Mosley said in his decision that he was actually leaning the other way before he examined all the evidence. He pointed to arguments of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and the Canadian Constitution Foundation in changing his mind. This is a win for civil liberties advocates in this country. I do believe that. But it does seem to me like a loss for the media, which I think, with some notable exceptions, tended to uncritically accept the government narrative on these protests. This is something Justice Rouleau actually wrote about for the commission. He talked about how the truckers were victims of misinformation as well as spreaders of it, but victims in the sense that media coverage often amplified this small extremist element. One of the examples he gives is the apartment arson allegations, which we now know not connected to the protests at all. In your view, as someone who participated in the commission, who's followed this very closely, what role do you think the media contributed to this? Well, the problem was when people were talking about the harms of the convoy, they had two sets of arguments. One was about very specific things. Let's just say horn honking. And what's interesting is when you think about whether or not you need to use the Emergencies Act, well, there was an injunction proceeding going forward, right? So the courts were assessing whether or not something could be done about that particularly. And this is the normal course of how you deal with these things, right? You know, you have people going in and saying, I can't sleep at night because someone's doing this. Those people then say, yes, but I also have a right to freedom of expression. And then you have a judge sitting as a judge say, look, I need to, to consider how these two things intersect, right? That it might be a reasonable limitation on your freedom of expression to say that you can't honk your horn at all anymore. Right? It might be, hypothetically, but that has to be on the basis of sworn testimony and people talking about how it's affecting them, etc., so you had that particular discourse in the commission. But then you also had people, and this was the entire first week of the hearings at the commission, talking about how they were living in fear. And then when you had cross-examination at the commission, well, what was the source of this? Were people, you know, these people were very scary. What did they do to you specifically? Did anybody yell an insult at you? Did anyone menace you in various ways? And, and very often, these witnesses would say, well, well, no, I mean, not not personally, but I, I, I knew what they were thinking. Very much that. I said, well, how do you know what they were thinking? Did you speak with them? Did you or did you engage in some sort of process that would give you some input into that? And for better or for worse, you know, a, a court proceeding around an injunction does give you that kind of a factual basis. Right. You have a sense of why people think it's important that they're there, and why they're doing what they do. Rather, it was just this extremely one sided portrait that seemed to come through the media who all seem to be singing from the same choir book about how dangerous, menacing, far right all these people were. And then when you saw people in the media who were doing a little bit more in-depth reporting, and I really have to call out one person in particular, it's uh, Rupa Sabramania. So Rupa did these on-the-spot recordings where she went and spoke to the protesters in Ottawa. And what was really notable was the diversity represented there. I mean, very few people would have known that there were that many Sikh truckers from British Columbia, right, involved in those protests, or quite a large number of people from a wide variety of ethnic backgrounds represented among the Freedom Convoy protests. Why wasn't that the picture being presented in the media otherwise? That's a really interesting question. And I think it takes us into some questions that may be a little bit off track for today about, you know, how the media is funded and you know, how it maintains financial viability vis-a-vis -vis alternate media, um, probably best to leave those aside for the moment. But it was really interesting in the commission to see how that media narrative seemed to shape perceptions on a very basic level. 
And, and just to be clear for listeners, with the commission, was there any smoking gun showing that this was a group of far-right extremists? No. And this was rather interesting because Rulo had to address it. And so I, I would just say to people, two things are worth discussing. And I think they should look at this in particular. So the testimony of the police officers who were charged with considering that very question of whether or not there was a possibility of ideologically motivated violent extremism, to use that technical definition, in, in the protests, right? So I think I would refer particularly to the chief of the Provincial Operations Intelligence Bureau, who testified at length in the commission. Look at what they said in their testimony and look at what was in the documents revealed during the discovery process of the commission. The answer is clearly no. And they were very forthright about this. And they were also very forthright about how they were constantly being pushed to say that there was. There was an appetite. There's testimony about this and the documentary rectory bears it out. There's a constant drumbeat of appetite. Tell us that there are far-right extremists involved in the organizing of this protest and that they might escalate this to violence. And they were complaining about that, that political movement for them to reach that motivated conclusion. And another problem that emerged was when they were people were saying, yes, but didn't you say that there was some of this? They said, well, that's because of what we call open source methodology, right? And one of the key sources for all that open source intelligence work was CAHN, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, who have a clear political agenda. When you're relying as an intelligence agency or as a police bureau on CAHN to tell you, look at these people, they have connections to somebody who has connections to someone who has connections to someone, it's becoming very political. And you see in the testimony and documentary record of those people, including the central figures that I mentioned, how upset they were that this was driving the narrative rather than the fact that they were running intelligence operations on the ground. They had plainclothes operators in the crowds in Ottawa and other places as well that were telling them the exact opposite about how this was not being driven by those ideologically motivated violent extremists who, if they existed, had only the most tangential connection to what was going on, particularly in Ottawa. Well, I, I want to close now by just talking about the sort of consequences of this time in terms of social divisions. We talked about this last time you and I spoke. Ottawa residents, there was huge social divisions. I heard this from residents myself, some who were in support of the truckers and, you know, the the large kind of center town contingent who were very upset. And, and to be fair, I, I would have found it tough to live for weeks with what was going on in the protests as well. But nevertheless, the, these social divisions, this is something else Rouleau called attention to, criticizing the prime minister for inflaming the situation with his comments about the fringe minority. To close today, have some of these social divisions healed yet? And if not, how do we heal them? I think we need a reckoning. And I think that reckoning has to do with what is the role of the government with the respect to promoting those divisions? Because again, one of the most troubling things that I saw at the commission was documentary evidence that people very close to the Prime Minister of Canada saw the Freedom Convoy protests as an opportunity to create that narrative of division, talking about how they could link it to January 6th, use the same kind of narrative to talk about how these people are dangerous and how the government needs more powers to deal with them. And that's what Justice Mosley's rebuke is about, most fundamentally. Um, so I think it's not just about how we heal the divisions, but how we have a kind of political 
culture that calls people to account for creating, manipulating, and promoting those divisions. Well, it is a pretty big moment in our country. We'll be watching this story very closely in coming weeks. Uh, Ryan, thank you for taking the time to come on today and talk about this with us. Always a pleasure, Tara. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts.